This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kemp and Dr. Alistair Stark. Welcome to Higher Ed Heroes. My name is Seb. And my name's Al. This podcast is about transformative moments in the classroom. We believe that these moments when we bring classrooms to life can really be achieved by making small changes that are easy to adopt. And here you've heard what our focus is. Small things communicated in quite simple ways with wonderful teachers in the hope that the practices that they are having might inspire you. So we encourage you to listen to what our guests have to say, reflect on their practices and think about whether this might work in your own classroom. And because we know our listeners are busy and time poor, we always want to communicate these small lessons in a jargon-free way. That's why we have the teaching buzzer. For the last time, no. Which we hit when we hear those buzzwords that are more at home in a teaching committee or a faculty meeting. Seb, shall we introduce this week's guest, which I know you're doing through a quote this week. I know, and I thank you, Elle, for allowing me to do this, because I wanted to do this all along, and Elle was like, nah, we're not going to have this, but... I managed to get this in here. And so I would like to start my introduction with a statement by Apollo Fierre, who said, quote, Studying is above all thinking about experience. And thinking about experience is the best way to think accurately. Unquote. And I'm using this because I think it really aptly describes what Dr. Rebecca Olive, or Beck Olive, our guest today, is applying to her classroom. Beck is not only a good friend, but also a senior research fellow in the School of Human Movement and Nutrition Sciences here at the University of Queensland. And in her research and teaching, Beck looks at how lifestyle and nature sports relate to movement, physical cultures, body and health. Beck, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start us off. You teach physical educators. And we're told that your classrooms are full of high achievers. And in your course, you make them pick up a sport that they've never done before. And then you make them write about that sport. Why do you do that? In our school, our students come to us as uh, yeah, high-achieving athletes and sports people. So they come to us with a lot of success in sport and positive relationships to what sport should be. Also lots of assumptions around sport. So I'm using the word sport here to describe physical activity, movement practices, and we could include health practices in there as well. So going for a walk or something might be how I think of sport and health. But for our students, they're thinking of football and being able to throw a javelin really far. So they really have these particular ways of thinking about what sport is in people's lives. When they come to study with us, they're training to be physiotherapists, coaches, PE teachers, exercise physiologists and nutritionists. So they're going to be working with people who need their expertise to work on their own health and relationships to sport too. But if our students think very particularly in a quite moralised way about what's good and bad through sport, we're trying to challenge that so that they'll be able to work with more diverse people. So instead of just working with athletes or people who are really good at sport in very limited terms, they can open that up. When they come to our school, (laughs) they do a lot of lab-based training, but We're trying to get them to think critically about what sport is, what health is, and how their assumptions that they have about both those. This activity that they have to do, doing a sport they've never done before, is about them experiencing a situation that challenges all of their assumptions that they have. You've grown up and you've always played 
rugby, let's say it's rugby union, uh, and you've always excelled at it and you've been rewarded for that, so your body's a particular way. If I ask them to go and do a yoga class, those young men are so challenged by that. They don't even know where to start. But they're not going to do that without a bit of encouragement because we don't like to feel uncomfortable. This is a way for us to ask the students to go and challenge themselves in and challenge their assumptions about sport through experiencing it. I mean, that's already pretty amazing if I only were to imagine if I had to do a sport that I would have never done. But you link this obviously alongside that experience with the idea of writing a diary that is quite central to their learning, right? What's happening in that space? It's one thing to just have a set of experiences that you can not think about again. And it's another to have to reflect on those experiences. And writing's a form of thinking, right? And it's, it's a, we have to work through our thoughts and organize them as well. So it's a really good practice to take time to sit down, record what happened, what, you, what they observed, how they felt, and have to then communicate that to, in this case, an assessor. It makes them have to sit there and think about that in the context of the course content, <laughs> which is raising issues around the role of sex and gender in how people experience sport, race and ethnicity, um, able-bodiedness, ageing, different kinds of health issues, class, you know, all the, all the sorts of things we teach about around identity. And a diary kind of works well because a lot of the students, they don't do social and cultural subjects. They're going then into labs or different kinds of classrooms. A diary is chronological and we can think chronologically kind of simply. So if you just sit down and write, what happened to you this week? How did that make you feel? And then at the end, you can start to draw things through. The diary format works really well in that way to encourage them to be able to write with confidence. You're really challenging identities so that people can see other identities. Is that right? So you come with one identity. I'm a sports person. I'm very good at this. This is how I define myself but you want them to see other identities and be aware, so you challenge that kind of thinking. What does that look like in a diary? Do you actually see people self-reflecting on their own vulnerabilities or stepping into these other identities in their diary? What they'll tend to do is think with compassion develop a compassion for discomfort that they mightn't have had before because they're used to turning up to a rugby club and they know the rules of that club and how to just slot in without noticing so they don't feel the weight of the water. When I ask a rugby guy to use the same analogy as before to go and do a yoga class, the weight of the water is all around him and he feels it very powerfully. So he's he can make observations of an, uh, an unfamiliar space more easily than he can in a familiar space. That's true for us all. So it's really powerful ways for them to think about that in ways that seem extreme to them. But when they think back to apply those kind of ideas to their own context, they can start to look with a bit more subtlety around the assumptions they and their sporting culture have around who can participate, how and why. I love that phrase, the weight of the water. What context do you put different people into? Fuel the weight. You mentioned rugby to yoga. What other journeys do you put people on? One of the things is that the students have to feel comfortable and safe in the sport that they're going to do. So I don't want anyone to feel unsafe or out of their depths. To continue with the water well analogy. Played, well played. <laughs> so we get them to choose a sport. So they have to make a decision around what sport's different to what they usually do as well, which is part of the exercise. So to continue with a rugby example, a rugby union player might come to me and say, well, I thought I'd try rugby league because I've never played that. 
<laughs> so, and then I will say, no, mm-hmm. that's not appropriate. So what I would hope is that they do something like, say, uh, dance or Pilates, or I had one student who did aquarobics. And so these things are completely different ways they use their bodies, completely different activity cultures, and that's where they're going to really be challenged in their assumptions around the value of their body. That diary writing seems to be interesting because it is one thing for those students to experience a sport and activity that that's new to them, that they're not necessarily good in. But it's a whole different thing for them to then also write about this and I guess to articulate that feeling of being uncomfortable in that kind of role. Do you sense that or do you see that in your students? So we have to find phrasings that make it really accessible without... So the word discomfort wouldn't be one I would necessarily use straight away. We might get to that. So they have to do the sport for six weeks. So we might start to talk about examples of discomfort or feelings of discomfort later on or, or vulnerability. But to start with, we think about making the familiar strange. So we talk to them about it's really hard to analyse your own context, your own sport, but it's much easier to go somewhere you've never been and make observations about how something works. So the task for them on paper is explain to someone who's never done the sport before how they could just fit in. How could they arrive at this activity and understand the, and I use air quotes, rules of the sport being the cultural rules? and be welcomed in and seem to belong more easily than they might without knowing those insider rules. So that's the task on the piece of paper and they can they can get that task. Often they make the mistake of you get these really complex explanations of how to play soccer. <laughs> Like, you know, how to score points and things. And we have to check in to make sure that's not happening (laughs) because I don't care. Um, We get them to talk about those rules. And so as we go through semester, you can start to talk about, well, how did you know what to wear? Did you change what you wore over time? So by looking at those moments of discomfort and over time, I use that language to go, what made you feel like you fitted in? Or when did you stop noticing When did you change what you wore, to use that example again? So to get them to, they have to come to seeing those sorts of observations. I remember going to a boxing class, and it was a massive class, and the fittest people were closest to the instructors, the real boxers. And then at the back were people like me who had just rocked up and didn't have any idea what they were doing in you. You, you walked into multiple different rooms, but you had to find your space over a few weeks, find the people around you that were at your level and build those relationships. And I suspect that when we do walk into any new context like that, we're doing that without thinking. Absolutely. And they write about that a lot. When they first turn up for their first session or the first time they do it, they mull about where to stand and how to enter the room and where do I put my shoes and where do I put my things. And so always the first diaries are kind of about that. What did I wear? Where did I stand? How can I not be seen is really the concern, which is so interesting because the assumptions we might make, so say I'll use a yoga class again because I have done a lot of yoga, you might feel like you're less visible if you stand at the back, but in a way, because you spend a lot of time in Downward Dog, you're not. You're not going to understand that, you know, um, until you've done the class. So sometimes being at the front can lead to more of a feeling of invisibility, but you don't know that till you've done it to understand how it feels to be in a different spot. How do your students react to all of this? as with all students in different ways. Some students really embrace it and that's what I try and encourage is embrace the discomfort, embrace being out of your depth. 
and some really resist it. And I always think there's going to be about 30% of the class who are just not going to take it seriously. They're just going to tick it over so they can get back in the lab to do their stuff. I'm not going to reach those students. So I always try and aim for the two thirds who are going to take a risk on this sort of thing. So yeah, I encourage them to sort of be vulnerable because it's not dangerous to be vulnerable in my classroom. So I draw very clear boundaries around particular forms of language, but otherwise it's really open to talking about complexity and and discomfort in ways that why they might have felt uncomfortable in a space and how that relates to their identity. That takes a large degree of trust in a room. And so I have to spend a lot of time building that up. And I do that in part by being vulnerable myself. And I have this thing where I always try and be the most embarrassing person in the classroom so that students always feel cooler than me, which is easy when you're a lecturer because they always do. (laughs) I was going to say, I think I do that instinctively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like a default (laughs) position. But I really encourage it by telling them stories a lot of, oh, so an example of this is one time I did went the first time I went surfing and my top came off and I was so embarrassed or you know so I'm always trying to be the least cool person so nothing they do could be more embarrassing than what I've done and then that opens it up a little bit so they can feel more comfortable about not being comfortable. There's a transferable quality here we often speak to people don't we who discomfort's not the right word but want to put students in different contexts because only through that difference do we actually start to learn. And if we stay in our lane, we don't have that. But it's a challenge to do it the right way, isn't it? There's a sensitivity required when you're presenting that challenge to students. For us in our school, our students are very focused on their vocation and what they'll be doing afterwards. So their degrees mean they get accreditation for very particular jobs. So it's not like an arts and humanities context where they could do a range of things. Our students could, but they get accredited in particular ways. So really what we're trying to do is give them some tools that they can take into their job and that they can apply in ways that are useful for them. They care so much about people's health and well-being. Now, I might have different definitions of what that means (laughs) than my students, but we're all on the same, same team with that. I always tell them, we've all drunk the same Kool-Aid. We think sport's good for us. (laughs) So once they understand that I'm in the same place as them and we're we're working to the same end, we can kind of start to talk about things that are really challenging and uncomfortable. Um, And they'll try and avoid it. So in the assignment a lot, the boys, particularly the young men, I should say, not boys. Well, some of them are boys, but young men, they just want to do things together. So they'll actually try and do the activity as a group. And it doesn't work very well for them usually because they can't access what they need to access, but they can't actually cope with having even that level of discomfort of doing a sport they've never done before on their own. There's an in-group, out-group element to sport as well, isn't there, which is profound, especially when you're in clubs and community organisations. And they base it so much on sport in particular. It's such an interesting context because it's about performance and who's best at it in very slim terms. And so that that gets challenged too because if they go and do a recreational sport that people are doing for social reasons and they're very competitive people, these students, <laughs> that goes out the door. So it's not going to work for them if they go and do a Pilates class, it's not going to work for them to compete. I had one student who went and did 
One student went and did aquarobics I mentioned before and he called them the fat old ladies that he was doing it with because he was doing rehab and they completely rejected him because his fit rugby body was of no value to them. He splashed too much and he really got in the way. He had to completely change how he thought about what was of value in that class, which was taking care of each other and having a nice time and, you know, laughing at yourself. And once he embraced that and he stopped trying to prove his strength to these women who couldn't have cared less about it, he had a really great time. Of course, there are various reasons as to why you make students go through that experience. And one important element is that in their later professional life, post-uni, many of them will not find themselves training the Premier League football club or the top athletes, but they will work maybe in a gym. They may be working in normal sports settings and having to actually deal with people who come there from all ranges of life who are not good at what they're doing, who are beginners or might want to try something out. So it obviously it helps your students to be able to place themselves into their future clients' shoes. And I'm wondering whether there is a wider message in here for us as teachers as well. You know, we are all coming through PhDs, we're academics. Would it be helpful for us to, you know, me in Peace and Conflict Studies, to enroll in criminology or physics in order to better understand what it looks like from the perspective of the first-year students who are sitting in my intro lecture. I've already said I'm the kind of person who's always the least cool kind of person, the most embarrassing person in a context. And I've sort of embraced that. And part of that was learning to surf when I was older. And you're just embarrassed all the time. You can never be good at it. So you have to be there for your own pleasure and to learn something new. And you develop such compassion through that, through being bad at something and still doing it anyway. And so I take up new things quite a lot <laughs> or try new things to be bad at them and figure them out. And it gets easier and easier over time to have more and more compassion for what it's like to turn up to something for the first time or to not understand. And it's certainly made me a more compassionate teacher in lots of ways. But there's some real social capital being built here as well. There's nothing more heartwarming when you meet an elite athlete who looks superhuman and who acts superhuman and then you interact with them and they are human and compassionate there's reciprocity there I see it with my son where he might run up to people who are amazing at sport and they're very accommodating and nice to him and you think oh wow because being good at something takes a lot of dedication and focus at the expense of other things in your life. And I think that's, you know, as you said, there's bigger picture stuff around being good at anything. And a good teacher even can be like that. Keeping your mind wide and understanding that what you're good at is wonderful, but it's not the only thing that should be valued in any situation. And sports, certainly, when you're out in the water and there's a good surfer and they're meant to be the person you admire most because we're talking about sport, it seems relevant. But they're not the most admirable if they're horrible and they're making other people feel unwelcome or unsafe. The people I admire most in any of those contexts are the people who are most welcoming and most compassionate. And so that's what I try and encourage with the students for exactly the reason you say, Seb, that most of them won't be working with the Broncos <laughs> or, or at the Olympics. They'll be working in hospitals with people with chronic health problems. Like You really need to challenge them to understand and not moralise health in a sense. I think that's a very nice point here to uh, wrap things up with this episode. Um, I think a great lesson to be learned about how carefully 
we need to be as teachers and also like with dedicated to the insight that it takes in order to bring out things like vulnerability that help students learn. Beck, thank you so much for coming in. And for those of you who are tuning in here, um, thank you so much for tuning in. If you if you liked what you heard, you can please check out our other episodes or find us on social media. Thanks for joining us on High Red Heroes. And as always, we look forward to your company again. 